Well, this is the, the fourth of seven acts of faithless rebellion during Israel's 40 years of travelling through the wilderness between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land. Now, last week, someone asked a question about the timing of these events. Where in the 40 years did these seven um, acts of rebellion happen? Well, we saw t- today, in today's reading, that the 40-year period begins here as the Lord's response to their faithfulness and their refusal to enter the land. So that means that the first three acts of rebellion, which two of which we saw last week, all happened very soon after they left Mount Sinai in quick succession, possibly all in a matter of a few days, as it was only a three-day journey from Mount Sinai to where they are now. The point of this is to show the people's persistent lack of faith and the persistent faithfulness of the Lord. The moment they left the relative security of the camp at Sinai, they complained and they kept complaining. The lesson for us, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, is that we should not be like them. Because while they saw the wondrous works of God and yet they complained, we've seen a much more wondrous work of God in Christ. Now there's a lot I could talk on from this passage, but I want to focus on one big question that may have come up in your mind from this story. Does God change his mind? We might read the story at face value and say, yeah, that seems to be what's happening here. Not once, but twice. Remember, the Lord promised to be their God and to take them into the land that he promised to Abraham. But here, he seems to change his mind because of their sinfulness, deciding to destroy them and to make a great nation out of Moses instead. And then... In response to Moses' prayer, he forgives them instead. If this is what's happening, we have a serious problem. If God is changing his mind, we have no grounds on which to rely on God. If he says one thing at one time and then so easily changes his mind because of people's sins or because of the prayers of one man, then we can never be sure that his plans are actually going to come to pass. How can we know that his promises won't be undone by human beings? Or we might read this in an even more frightening way. If the Lord never intended to do what he was saying he would do, does that mean he was lying? If that was the case, then our problems doubled. Not only couldn't we rest on his sovereign power to ensure that all of his plans will come to pass, but we also couldn't trust his claims to be good and righteous and loving. We'd never be able to trust his words to be reliable or true from the very start. However, there's a reason why We must not understand this event 
in either of those two ways. And the reason is actually right here in the book of Numbers. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and it will and he will not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And it's important for us to see that this statement is in the same book as this story. If we had such a statement in a different Bible book from a different author, we might be tempted to say, well, one author had one view of the Lord and another had another contradictory view. But the fact that it's in Numbers tells us that Moses, who recorded both the story and this statement, he obviously didn't see them as contradictory. Moses wasn't dumb. Neither have been the millions of people who have read this book ever since it was written. An important principle of Bible interpretation, second to the principle of context, 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 is the principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. I hope I've got that right there in the Chinese, because I just used Google Translate to get that phrase there. This means two things for the way that we try to understand whatever we read in the Bible. Firstly, the parts which are unclear or seem difficult to understand should be interpreted by the parts that are clear and are easy to understand. And secondly, God's actions recorded in the Bible should always be understood and interpreted according to his revealed character in the Bible. We so often make the mistake of interpreting his actions according to our character, which is what Numbers 23.19 refutes. See, I assume that things happen in my life, whether they're good or bad, and they're happening for the same reason that they would happen if I was God. When I suffer, I conclude that God is choosing to permit or to send that calamity because he's like me in my weakness and sinfulness. That bad things are happening to me because God is weak or not loving or disinterested or absent. And then when good things happen, I use the same principle and I conclude that he's blessing me because I'm a good person who's done something to earn his favour. No, instead we should always interpret God's actions in light of his revealed character. We should always seek to understand our experiences in light of who we know he has told us he is about himself in his word. That's why over and over... Believers in the New Testament are told that not only can they, but they should rejoice in sufferings. Even if that suffering for them was far beyond what any of us could really imagine. Often ending with what the world would say is a brutal, tragic death. How could these Christians stand firm in their faith continue to rejoice 
continue to love their enemies as they were fed to lions or stoned or sawn in two or burned alive or crucified. Not because they've trained themselves to be resilient, but because they knew the character of God, their Redeemer, as they saw clearly and conclusively in Jesus Christ. Jesus who suffered and died and rose for them. So this was part of Israel's problem. They hadn't comprehended the character of the Lord who had redeemed them. Remember the book of Exodus. The Lord made himself known in two ways. Through his mighty acts in sending the plagues, in parting the sea, in providing food and water in the desert, and in his word given through the law at Mount Sinai. So his mighty acts made known his great power and majesty and sovereign rule over the world and over all nations. There was no question that he was powerful and he could cause all of creation to bend to his will. But it was his spoken revelation that made known his character as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. This revelation of who God is was to be the lens through which they were to interpret what he did. So, chapter 14 of Numbers, God's actions need to be understood in light of 23.19, God's character. And see how this is actually what Moses does in his prayer. Verses 13 to 16, Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness." Moses remembers what the Lord had declared at the very beginning of their journey out of Egypt. So in Exodus 14, the Egyptians, this is the Lord speaking, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God's design in saving his people was that all of the nations would see and know that he is Yahweh. He is the one true God over all of their so-called gods and that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So this is not just about the welfare of the Israelites. God's own reputation is at stake here. But he also remembers the Lord's words on Sinai. When Moses had asked to see his glory and the Lord passed by him, showing him his glory by proclaiming words about himself. 
And so in 17 to 19, Moses prays, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is asking the Lord simply to be true to his own character. He's saying that for the Lord to destroy the Israelites to whom he'd bound himself in a covenant, he would be denying himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So this twofold appeal to the Lord's reputation and to his revealed character. Moses is seeking to understand God's actions through the lens of who he knew God to be. But that hasn't yet answered our question. How are God's words here not him being like a fickle human being, changing his mind, or worse, like a sinful human being and lying? Why does, it, why does he say he'll do something and then appear to turn around and not do it? Well, it's because he's achieving two things in speaking in this way. Firstly, he's forcing Moses and through Moses the people to learn that very lesson of basing their faith upon his revealed character before basing it on their experiences. And secondly, he's doing it to show forth the nature of his grace in which he deliberately purposes that his mercy will always triumph over judgment. So firstly, we can see the Lord is presenting to Moses a hypothetical scenario, as if to say, what if, in response to the people's faithlessness, I acted towards them in the same way that they are acting towards me? They've said they no longer want me to be their God, and that they want to go back to Egypt. Well, what if I then said, okay, I will no longer be your God, and you will then no longer be my people. All of my promises are hereby revoked and annulled. Faced with that scenario, Moses correctly says, but Lord, that's not who you are. You aren't a God who makes a promise and then takes it back. You are the God who relates covenantally, not contractually. Your faithfulness doesn't depend on how faithful human beings are towards you because faithfulness is one of your eternal attributes that will never change. So the Lord is forcing Moses to pray in this way, not because God needs to be reminded of who he is, but because Israel needs to be reminded of who he is. When we pray, it's always good to start 
with remembering, celebrating, thanking God for who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Not because he needs to hear it, but because we do. The chief goal of prayer isn't to make God give us what we want, but to have our own wills and hearts bent towards his so that we come into line with his will. So the best place to start is to remind ourselves who he is by confessing what we know of him through what he's revealed of himself in his word. And that will then put things into perspective. Not only will will we be renewed in our vision of who God is, but we'll also be reminded of who we are as his creatures and as sinners saved by his lavish grace. So then when we finally come to asking him for our needs, talking about our experiences, we'll do so in light of who he is and we'll ask him to act in a way that is true to his character, not our character or our selfish desires. Think of it, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, his character. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His righteous actions that are in line with his character. And then, my experiences. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first half of the prayer is about who God is, as the Father, the King, the Sovereign God whose will is done in heaven and earth. Only after that comes the request for provision, for forgiveness, for protection. Our personal situation is seen in light of his character. That also gives us permission to question God about the things that we see happening around us, especially when to our view, the things that he seems to be doing or allowing in the world seem inconsistent with his character. Just read the Psalms and over and over again, you'll see the Psalmist asking, why? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Awake, Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? See, the psalmist can ask why, because he knows who God is. It seems to him in his moment of trial that what God is doing seems to be far from who he is. God wants us to ask these why questions so that we'll see that despite our limited, cloudy perspective, he's never standing far away. He's never hiding himself in times of trouble. He's never sleeping. He never casts us away. He never hides his face from us. But we need to experience this hypothetical scenario even to the point of having it fleshed out as if it were reality in our lives, in order to 
learn not to have faith in our circumstances, but in him. So Moses concludes his prayer with this appeal to who God is and the fact that he's always acted consistently with his character in the past. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, your character, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, your past consistent actions. Now secondly, Moses, uh, sorry, the Lord is speaking in this way by sh- to show that his mercy triumphs over judgment. This isn't the only time in the Bible where we see this pattern of God pronouncing judgment and then not going through with it. It's a deliberate pattern. It's designed to show us that while he's perfectly and fully in his rights as creator to give his creatures exactly what we deserve, grace means he doesn't. Each time he uses the same kind of language, a definite, swift, complete judgment in order to press home to us the seriousness of sin and the unyielding demand of justice. We might say that he's willing to have his words misconstrued as changing his mind in order to highlight the reality of our sin and evil. There are numerous occasions in which it seems as if he changes his mind about promised judgment. Here's just a few. Adam was told that on the day that he ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, he would surely die. Very definite, very immediate language. When Adam and Eve did eat the fruit, while we might say they experienced a spiritual death, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord, they nevertheless remained alive in their bodies. And death only finally came after living long lives of opportunities to know God's grace. So God's mercy triumphed over judgment. Before the flood, God declared that he was going to wipe humanity from the face of the earth. And he says, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, a promise of certain, complete judgment in which it sounds like he's changed his mind about humanity. But then what happens? He shows favour towards Noah and his family and through them the whole human race that came from them so that this mighty act of judgement in the waters of the flood covering the whole earth was turned into a mighty act of redemption in which the world was baptised and given a new start. So God's mercy triumphed over judgment. One more example, Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, where the Lord told him to declare, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Not might be overthrown, but will be overthrown. But the people of Nineveh repented. And the Lord's definite word of judgment didn't come to pass. Jonah wanted to see his enemies destroyed, 
But to his dismay, God's mercy triumphed over judgment. That's what the Lord is doing here. A definite word of judgment. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. But it's in order to highlight the grace of verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Note that he says, I have pardoned, which is in the perfect tense, meaning it happened in the past and it's already completed. In other words, the Lord is saying, they're already forgiven. Even before you asked, I'd answered, but I, you needed to ask that you could see that I was bringing your heart and your will into line with mine. By appealing to God's character and recalling God's previous acts of grace, Moses' intercession for Israel is a picture to us of Christ's intercession for us before the Father. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And 1 John 2, 1 to 12. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also, excuse me, for the sins of the whole world. What qualifies Jesus to be the advocate, the intercessor? Well, firstly, it's because he comes to the Father as the Son. And as he said, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus fully knows the heart of his Father And so he can represent us before the Father and pray on our behalf in perfect alignment with the Father's character and will. And secondly, because he stands before the Father on the basis of the finished work of salvation accomplished at the cross. He is the one who died, Romans 8.34 says. He is the propitiation for our sins, John says. So just as Moses recalled the Lord's saving actions in Exodus from Egypt, so too Jesus recalls the Exodus that he has accomplished for us in his death. It's a beautiful hymn that we sing here from time to time. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive them. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. At the cross of Jesus, God has declared his 
definite, immediate, complete and uncompromising judgment upon sinful humanity. When we look at the cross, before anything else we see a human being under the full wrath of God. The cross and its bleakness and its blackness is God's verdict upon humanity, his confirmation that the law's decree that the soul that sins will die is true. So in the cross we see the justice of God triumphing over evil. Yet at the same time, the cross is mercy triumphing over judgment. Because the sins that are punished there are not his own, but ours that have been laid on him. Because he hangs there as our federal head, our representative, the final Adam, so perfectly representing us that for all intents and purposes, we are in him and being crucified in him. So we can truly say that we have already stood before the judgment of God and we have been spared. The angel of death has passed over us. By giving the justice that we deserve to Jesus, we have been showered with mercy and grace. The Lord forgave the Israelites, who had in Moses and in the law only a shadow of what was to come. And he did so in response to the prayer of a sinful and imperfect mediator in Moses. How much more can we have the confidence that his forgiveness comes to us through the perfect, sinless intercession of Jesus? He's the reality to which this pointed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story we've heard in Numbers that doesn't just give us an interesting historical uh, story to know, but in that story we see ourselves. We see ourselves as those fickle, faithless, rebellious Israelites, uh, unwilling to hear your word, unwilling to know you, unwilling to obey you, unwilling to step into Uh, the promise and the plan that you have for them. Father, that is so much like us. Every day we doubt your word and your promise. But Father, we also see in the imperfect example of Moses uh, the wonderful good news uh, that we have an advocate before your throne, that Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, Uh, is interceding for us. His death paid for all of our sins. Uh, We are clothed in his righteousness and we have a sure hope, a sure promise, and we can trust you uh, to always act in a way that's true to who you are as the God who is uh, faithful, loving, righteous, good and holy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.